Philip Yancey, well, let me get this out of the way first of all, before I trip over it. <laughs> Philip Yancey wrote of a friend of his, na- of his named Susan, a Christian who told Yancey that her husband did not measure up and she was actively looking for other men to meet her needs for intimacy. When Susan mentioned that she rose early each day to spend an hour with the Father, with God, in devotions, he asked her, in your meetings with the Father, do any moral issues come up that might influence this pending decision about leaving your husband? Susan bristled. That sounds like the response of a white Anglo-Saxon male. The Father and I are into relationship, not morality. Relationship means being wholly supportive and standing alongside me, not judging. The Father and I are into relationship, not morality. Really. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, where we pick up this morning says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. And we've already talked about how the rest in this passage is our spiritual rest, our salvation, becoming a Christian. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, that peace, that rightness with the Father, with God, lest anyone fall through following the same example of the Israelites of disobedience. The message here is very simple. We are to rush to God's rest. Well, technical problems here. There we go. Rush to God's rest lest we face God's gaze, all right? God has x-ray vision into our souls. He sees what no one else can see. And, contrary to Susan and others who share that opinion, God does judge our behavior. True rest comes by grace through faith. We know that. It is not our merit that earns God's favor, that earns God's salvation. But entering God's rest by faith does not mean that morality does not matter. Verse 11 exhorts us to be diligent, to make every effort to enter God's rest, lest we fall by way of disobedience, just like the Israelites failed to enter the land by their disobedience in this section. The verb means to hurry, to take pains. There is an urgency that is a part of entering that rest. We should hurry, take pains to receive God's grace by faith. Faith and obedience, then, are two sides of the same coin. True faith obeys God. Real faith wants to do what God wants. Disobedience is disbelief. When we choose to act immorally, 
then we are choosing not to believe God and we are choosing not to enter into his rest. We cannot have peace with God. That's what the rest is. Having peace with God, being right with God. We cannot be at peace with God while pursuing sin in our lives. True rest is not inactive. True rest is peace that comes from faith. It is confidence that comes from trust, according to verse 16. You look down at verse 16. We won't get that far this morning. But it says, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. The grace is available by faith. And we want that confidence with God. We want that sense of rightness with God by faith. We enter God's rest by faith. But true faith is active. It is alive because we are living out that faith in our behavior. So we should make every effort to enter God's rest by faith, lest we face God's x-ray vision into our souls, which reveals that our faith was a fake. All right, principle number one, then, as we look into this passage. God measures our hearts by His Word. Verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Contrary to what people... Well, I'm really doing well here this morning. We'll forget that one. All right, let's see, where are we? There we go. You're with me, aren't you? (laughs) God does judge us. That's what the Bible says. That's what this verse says. His x-ray vision penetrates our hearts. He sees what no one else can see. The Greek word that is translated judge in this verse, you see down there, he is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Greek word that is translated judge is the word from which we get our English word critic. Critic. So God is a critic. That's what it says. God is the ultimate critic. His critique of our lives is the only critique actually that matters, isn't it, in the end? God critiques, it says, our thoughts, our intentions. He looks inside us to see not just what we are doing, but why we are doing it. He judges the ponderings, the deliberations that take place in our minds. What we think about, what we reflect upon, that's evaluated by God. He critiques it. The Greek word that is translated intentions means moral understanding. What is our moral understanding that leads to our choices? God critiques the moral understanding we exhibit in life by our decisions. So faith is not a freebie to do whatever we want to do. I have to tell you, I'm I'm no longer surprised anymore by what I would call the moral illogic 
of we who claim to be Christians at times. Our choices. People will do what they want to do and then justify it by saying, well, God will support me. God's okay. I'm, I believe in God. I, I hear so often, perhaps you hear the same argument that goes something like this. Don't tell me what to God do. God doesn't tell me what to do. He is a loving God and he wants me to be happy. So God will support me in whatever I choose to do. But that's not what this verse said. Grace and loving compassion to help us in our need, but not to help us to do what he doesn't want us to do. God loves you, but God will critique you. God will judge us all, because real faith in God changes our moral understanding, our choices, our behaviors, how we live. God sees then deep inside us, and He will judge us, He will critique us in His time. Someone has said that a hypocrite is someone who complains there's too much sex and violence on his VCR. What we choose to record and what we choose to watch, those are our choices. And those are moral choices that we make that will be critiqued by God because they show what is really in our hearts. That's why obedience is the flip side of the coin of faith. Obedience is the demonstration of the faith. Now, you can't earn God's merit by obedience without the faith, but faith, real faith, will show itself in obedience. Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy. I mean, most people think of themselves as good, good people, but good people do bad things in this world. Theologian Reinhold Niebuhr said, most of the evil in this world does not come from evil people, it comes from people who consider themselves good. It's rare that people say, well, I'm a bad person. No, I'm a good person. But then they're doing bad things, evil things. What does the Bible say? There is none good, none righteous, no, not one. We have all sinned. Anybody here not included in the all? We've all blown it, every single one of us. Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. It's easy to proclaim ourselves good while doing what God says is bad, and that is the height of hypocrisy. How will God critique our choices? Well, he will critique our choices by his word, verse 12 tells us. God critiques our choices by his word. And his word, the word of God, is alive. It is living. It is effective. It is active in this world. It's not merely man's words. Of course, that's the problem, isn't it? Many people consider this book to be just the words of other human beings. But it isn't. It is God's word. The Bible is not a dead book, but a living word from God that pierces, that penetrates our lives. 
with His truth. God said in Isaiah 55 verse 11, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, void, but will accomplish what I desire, God says, and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. That's the power of God's word. Not my words, God's word. Hebrews 4.12 here tells us that God's word is sharper than any double-edged sword, a dagger that pierces into the human body. The word of God penetrates, penetrates, it pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. The expression just piles up words and images to tell us that, that God's word is so penetrating that nothing can hide from His Word. This is the standard of measurement then. And God has x-ray vision into the soul. The Bible is the standard by which God measures. Real faith seeks to live by this book. And the standards God has given us in this book. Because real faith trusts God that this book is the expression of His will. So if God is going to measure me by his book, then I should seek to live by it, right? I don't mean that we have to live up to what every preacher says or what every priest says. That's not the point at all. It's not my words that matter in the end. Surely I pray and I seek to properly explain what his word says on Sunday morning. But folks, it's not my words that matter, it's his It's complying with what he says that matters. You look at it. You evaluate it. It's God's word that he promises to bless that will not return void. I am just like you, a sinner, who will stand before God's gaze one day, just like you. And I seek with all my heart to live by this book, just like you. But the standard of measurement is here. This is our standard of measurement. It is His. It is the Bible. God promises that His Word will not return empty. His Word will accomplish its purpose in life. So it is His Word that we must follow. Not mine, not any other preachers, not any priest or anything. God's Word is powerful. It is God's Word that changes lives. The prisons in the Canadian province of Quebec enforce a ban on smoking. I suppose that's probably fairly common. With no cigarettes, the inmates have resorted to creative solutions. In place of tobacco, some use a mixture of tea leaves and residue from the nicotine gum provided to help smokers kick the addiction. The concoction is rolled up in a page from the Bible. The Bible is used because those pages burn slower than normal paper, making the effect last longer. And, of course, because the Bible is readily available in prisons. And so they use the pages of the Bible to make their cigarettes. An inmate named Robert told reporters, I smoked Matthew, I smoked Mark, I smoked Luke. When I got to John, I read about how God loves me. Now I don't smoke anymore because now I'm a Christian. 
The Bible is powerful. You've got to read it first, not smoke it, but it's powerful. The smoking part didn't do him any good. The reading part changed his life, right? God's word is powerful. It changes lives. Millions of people, perhaps all of you, have seen Nick Ute's Pulitzer Prize winning photo of Fan Kim Fook. On June 8, 1972, a napalm bomb, if you remember the story, was dropped on her village in Vietnam. Fook, who was just nine years old at the time, ran crying from her hiding place in the village temple in Vietnam. And Ute's picture shows Fook's arms outstretched in terror and pain, skin flapping from her legs as she ran down the dusty street crying, Nong qua, nong qua, too hot, too hot. That picture became an iconic picture for the Vietnam War, spread across the world in newspapers and on television. Doctors said Kim would not survive. But after 14 months in the hospital and 17 surgeries, she returned to her family. Despite the miraculous recovery, Kim was seldom free from pain and nightmares and anger. She was an angry child. The anger inside me was like a hatred high as a mountain, said Kim. And my bitterness was black as old coffee. I hated my life. I hated all people who were normal because I was not normal. I wanted to die many times. Doctors helped heal my wounds, but they couldn't heal my heart. While spending time in a library, Kim came across a Bible. She began reading the New Testament. The more I read, the more I felt confused, Kim said. I wondered which was true, my religion or the Bible. Kim's brother-in-law had a friend who was a Christian there in Vietnam, so he arranged, she arranged to see him with her list of questions. And after they talked, the friend invited Kim to visit his church for a Christmas service. The end of the service was a turning point in Kim's life. I could not wait to trust the Lord, Kim said. Jesus helped me learn to forgive my enemies, and I finally had some peace in my heart. Now when I look at my scars or suffer pain, I'm thankful the Lord put his mark on my body to remind me that he is with me all the time. God's word. And forgive her enemies, she did. Because if you haven't heard the story or seen the video of it, it is powerful. Kim eventually met the pilot, the American pilot, who flew the plane and dropped the napalm bomb on her village. And he met her and he asked her forgiveness for what he had done for her, to her. And she forgave him for Christ had changed her heart. She forgave him for dropping the napalm on her village. That's the power of God's word. That's the power of God's word to change lives completely. Right? God uses his word then to change our lives. And if God's word is not changing our lives, then we must realize that God's word will critique our lives. It's penetrating. It's piercing. The choice is ours. We can follow him by faith or we can face his critique. Because all we hide from others is open to his eyes. 
He sees it all. Look at verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All we hide from others is open to God's eyes. A 2006 workplace poll of 1,600 employed adults asked the following question. If you knew your employer could see content from your social network website, such as MySpace, uh, Friendster, or Facebook, would you remove any content from it? 33%, a third of all the working adults in the survey said they definitely would remove content from their website. And another 30% said they would seriously consider it. They might do that. I mean, we all have things about ourselves we want to keep private. We want to hide from others, don't we? We, we fear that if people saw the real us, they would not like us. And so we hide our worst faults. We put our best faces on in front of others. And that is especially true where? In church. Yeah, you're all going in church. Absolutely. We perfect that art in church, don't we? Church is one of the easiest places to be hypocritical. Hypocrisy flourishes in churches. We know that because we can put our religious face on Sunday and then live very differently on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday when we're away from church. It becomes almost a habit at times. J.I. Packer, the theologian, said, along with much bad thinking that has come down to us from the last 400 years goes split living. People who live compartmentalized lives worship God and go to church and do their religious bit on Sundays. Then they switch that off and pursue their professions, weekday work, weekend hobbies, and all their relationships as though these were matters entirely separate from their Christian commitment. They don't even try to see their lives as a whole in terms of God and His Word. Instead, they slip into their religious compartment on Sundays and their secular compartment all of the other days of the week and allow no communication between the two. He's right. It is easy to live compartmentalized lives. To slip into the religious bit on Sundays and the secular bit the rest of the week. In fact, what's the most common complaint people say about church, right? Well, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. You know what I say? Yeah, there's hypocrites in church. Sure. That doesn't mean there's not truth. That doesn't mean there's not grace. There's not, that doesn't mean God isn't at work. But it is easy to fall into the trap of hypocrisy, to live these compartmentalized lives. The life of a Christian should be no different on Monday than it is on Sunday, right? Except for perhaps the location where you are or the activity that you have to perform, your job or whatever, but your character should not change. Your 
Thinking should not change, right? We all agree with that. Our faith should govern how we do our jobs and how we live at home. We are not part-time Christians. There's no such thing as a part-time Christian, not a real Christian. Christianity should guide our politics and our families. Christ is the Lord of our jobs as well as of our church. So compartmentalizing is stupid because ultimately we can hide nothing from God, can we? Verse 13 says, Hmm, okay. Ah, my computer's really acting up this morning. Look at verse 13 again. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Everything in us and about us is an open book to God. The Greek word translated open is actually the word naked. Our souls are naked before God. It literally means, the, the, the next word translated uh, Laid open is an interesting word. It literally means to take by the throat. It was used of a wrestler in a chokehold who would lift his, his opponent's face back, up and out, exposing the throat. It was used of, for criminals who were being executed, where the person doing the executing would lift the chin up and back, exposing the throat for execution. Or an animal sacrifice where they would lift the animal's head back so they could execute. That's what laid open is. It's being exposed. It's being vulnerable. Well, God sees us in the same way. We are absolutely vulnerable. We are laid open. We are exposed to God. So it's a graphic description of our helplessness, of our vulnerability before God. He sees the invisible. All we hide from others is naked before His eyes. We cannot hope to trick God. We can trick other people, but we can't trick Him with our masks and our claims and our assertions. So I may be able to hide things from you, but I can't hide them from God. He knows. And when we stand before God, we have nothing left to hide. Nothing. God judges with perfect justice because He sees everything perfectly. And no one escapes God's justice unless we have, of course, Jesus Christ, which is the whole point here as the one who pays our price, because Christ paid to satisfy God's justice. So God's justice is satisfied by Christ. And if we come to Christ, then it's satisfied for us, and we can enter into God's rest. Otherwise, we're vulnerable. We are helpless. He sees everything. inside of us. The final clause there is a figure of speech. The New American Standard translates it as we are exposed before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, which is kind of an awkward expression. Probably best to translate it as him with whom we have to reckon. We have to stand in a day of reckoning with God. And we are exposed before the one 
before whom we stand in that day of reckoning. We will all face God one day. He will judge us perfectly because God is a God of justice and no one escapes. No one. Jesus said, For nothing is hidden that shall not become evident, nor anything secret that shall not be known and come to light. Scary verses, aren't they? Nothing is hidden that shall not become evident. Nothing is secret that shall not be known and come to light. Paul wrote, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time each will receive his praise from God. So unlike human judges, God knows everything about us. We cannot hide anything from him. So his justice is always perfect justice. We think we can get away with things in private today, but the reality is that someone is watching God. And he, in his time, will bring it to light. By the way, that's also why we can leave it to God to bring those things to light instead of having to do it ourselves. For God will in his time. God is watching. He knows. He sees. By the way, even on a human level now, it is increasingly true that someone is watching almost all the time. He's not happy. Syndicated news columnist, New York Times, Thomas Friedman, devoted a column in 2007 to the idea that technology has made everyone a potential paparazzi. Friedman explained that anyone we encounter could have a cell phone with a camera that could record our actions. And, in fact, it is happening all the time. The man in this picture, obviously, is not pleased with his picture being taken. But if we're rude or we misbehave or we do something, it isn't long before the whole world sees, because it's posted on blogs and websites, and there you are. We're all public figures now, concludes Friedman. For support, Friedman cites the new book, How, by Dove Seedman. It's his thesis that in this world of new and potentially revealing technology, how we live our lives and conduct our business has become far more significant than what we actually do. We do not live in glass houses, he says. Houses have walls, after all. We live on a glass microscope slide, visible and exposed to all. What a concept then. He says, take great care about how you live your life because someone is always watching. Well, every Christian already knew that, didn't we? We already knew that. That may be news to columnists and authors in this world, but it's not news to every Christian. God is always watching. He always sees, no matter how hidden you might think your thoughts are, or how hidden your activities you might think are. God is watching. He is a sovereign, all-seeing God. So we all have things we want to hide from God, but we can't. We'll face his justice. What's the solution then? Jesus Christ. That's the message of Hebrews. It's all about Jesus Christ. 
He's the solution. Trust Christ as our Savior. So if we confess our sins to God and accept Christ's payment for those sins, then God's justice is satisfied and we enter God's rest. We are at peace. We are right with God because of Jesus Christ. We accept that by faith. But it is a faith then that changes how we live. We now live for him. Or it's not true faith. Mary Poplin, professor of education and dean of the School of Educational Studies at Claremont Graduate University, attended the Methodist church as a child, but she began searching other spiritual traditions, including Buddhism, transcendental meditation, even telepathic attempts to bend spoons. She began teaching at Claremont, where a Christian friend encouraged her spiritual journey. Eventually, in 1993, she did become a Christian. In her own words, here's how it happened. I I knew a graduate student who lived his life differently. First of all, he prayed for me for eight years. And he would say irritating things like, if you ever want to do anything with your spiritual life, I'd like to help you. Well, that was irritating because I thought I was doing plenty with my spiritual life. You know I was bending spoons. And the other more distressing thing is, by the way, I'm, I'm going to read this lengthy testimony because it's, I, I can't say it better. So, The other more distressing thing is he would ask me questions like, do you believe in evil? And I would realize that I couldn't answer the question consistently. He worked at our university as a professor for a year on a sabbatical. And when he left, I had a dream. I still felt empty and confused. And in the dream, I was in the long line of people suspended in the air. The line seemed eternal on both ends. Jesus was standing, greeting us in line. When I looked at Jesus, I knew knew immediately what I was seeing. I couldn't even look at him. But for a second, I fell down to his feet and started weeping. And the only way I can describe the feeling I had in the dream is that I could sense every cell in my body and I felt total shame in every cell. Then Jesus grabbed my shoulders and I felt total peace like I had never felt in my life. I woke up and I was crying. So I go to the phone and I call this gentleman. He had never told me he was a Christian, but I called him and said, I think I need to talk to you about my spiritual life. And he said, let's meet for dinner. At dinner, he said, why do you think you have, to something with, you have to do something with your spiritual life now? And out of my mouth came something I'd never thought about. I said to him, I have some black thing in my chest and I don't know what it is. He just nodded and I told him the dream. I said, what do I do? And he said, do you have a Bible? He made sure I had one before we split up that night. He said to me, you could read five Psalms a day and one book of Proverbs. And I thought, well, okay, I'm going to do it. I mean... I'm really going to do it this time. And then he said, since Jesus was the one in your dreams, you might even read the New Testament. And that's how casual he was about that. I began to read. And we began to meet in town between our cities about once a week. That was November to January. In January, my mother wanted to go to North Carolina to where she had grown up. We went to this little Methodist church, not because she was religious. She just wanted to see her friends. When we got there, I was really moved to just go up to the altar and give my life to the Lord. It wasn't even an altar call, it was a communion call. 
The guy said, you don't have to be a member of any church to take communion. You just have to believe that Jesus Christ lived, that he died for your sins, and you have to want him in your life. And when he said that, I was so powerfully moved that I actually thought even if a tornado rips through this building, I'm going to get that communion. I took the communion and I didn't even listen to the guy. I knelt down and said to God, please come and get me, please come and get me, please come and get me. And when I took the communion and I said that, I felt free. I felt like tons of things had been lifted off me and I began to have an insatiable desire to read the Bible. Romans 1 says that God is obvious to everyone and the minds of people who deny him become darkened. Though they think themselves wise, they're actually foolish. That was me. That was me. But the scriptures began to heal my mind so I could actually think again. God's word is powerful. Father, your word does not return void. It is powerful because you are penetrating us with your truth and your love and your grace. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here today who has not acknowledged that they are a sinner, does not put their faith in Jesus Christ, your Son, as the only solution for that sin, and said, come take me. I want to follow you. Then I pray, Lord, that you, by the power of your Spirit, would bring each and every person here to that knowledge of you and of your word so that each and every person here this morning would be in your rest, would be at peace and right with you by the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.